scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 6. I'm reading verses 4 to 13 out of the NIV. It says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning, we celebrate baptism. Baptism has often been called the sacrament of entry into the church. A sacrament is just a fancy word for something that Jesus has commanded us to do as his followers. And when we do it, we receive from his grace and his presence in the process. So an example of another sacrament would be the sacrament of communion. Jesus said, do this, and when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And so as people who follow Jesus, we take those words seriously. And when we do that, when we have communion together, we know that the Lord meets us in it. And in the same way, Jesus said that when people become his followers, that their first act of obedience is to be baptized. And so we say it's a sacrament of entry into the church because it really is representative of a second birth into a new family in which everybody gets a lot of aunties and uncles and brothers and sisters and grandparents. This big C church, so much bigger than our little congregation here, right? But the church of believers everywhere. And so baptism is this sacrament of entry into the church. And it's also a witness to the world around us of our conversion. We've lost some of the elements of this that used to be there because of how privatized our more technologically advanced society has become. But you can imagine in a time where there was not running water in your home, a place where people would be often is a place where there is running water that you could gather to bring home for your chores and your meals. And that was the place 
where new believers in Jesus would go and be baptized, proclaiming to everyone who would see people in the world, I am now a follower of Jesus. Baptism is symbolic of the entire conversion process of becoming a Christian. And in fact, in the passage that we just looked at, it's referenced in that way, that we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Salvation comes by faith in response to the grace of God. But when a person is baptized, it's as though all of us get to watch that process in the physical, what's already being taken place in the spiritual. There are two parts to baptism. The first is being immersed under the water, and it represents death and burial. The second is being raised out of the water, which represents resurrection into new life. This morning, before Aaron comes to be baptized, I want us to focus in on these two parts for a few moments together this morning. These essential components of the Christian life both death and new life. I want you to watch a video, and this is a video that my friend Joe, some of you have met her when she's come to visit. I'd asked her to put her testimony in video form several years ago for a camp, um, and these are snippets from that testimony, and you can ignore the, the text about will you speak, that camp scene was speaking, and that fit with part of Joe's testimony, um, and I didn't have any way to edit it out after I'd edited it in. But I want you to watch her tell her story of death and new life um, as an illustration this morning as we dive into these important subjects. My name is Jo, and I am the pastor of a church called Papakura Wesleyan Church, which is in Auckland, New Zealand. So literally, greetings from the other side of the world. So when I was 13, I went to a camp and I heard about this God who loved me unconditionally, this God who, who wanted my life. And I looked at my life and I figured, well, actually, there wasn't much in it that I actually wanted to hold on to. And so if God wanted the best, he was certainly welcome to it. So I went home to my non-Christian family and my non-Christian friends, and although I did start going to church and youth group, I was still pretty shy about my faith really had a very private face that I never spoke about. So fast forward a couple of years when I was 15, I went to a big combined youth service where they had a guest speaker and a guest band and all that sort of thing. And to be honest, I mean, the speaker was interesting, but I can't remember what he spoke about. And yet they did this big altar call at the end. And to this day, I have no recollection of making a conscious decision to go forward. And I found myself at the front of that church. And that's when it kind of got a little bit awkward. Because all these people around me were having these big moments with God. You know, there were people crying and people praying for other people. And I'm standing there going, um, don't really know why I came forward. Don't really know what this is about. So uh, people were coming up to me and saying, you know, how can we pray for you? And I didn't really know how to answer them. But they started praying for me anyway. And I figured, well, you know, I'm here, so maybe I better talk to Jesus. Maybe I better um, pray myself. And so I remember saying to God, 
I don't know why I'm here, God, but, you know, do your thing. If, if, if you've got a reason, then I'd love to hear it. And I remember God saying, Joe, do you love me? And I went, oh, thank goodness, that's, that's great. This is what this is about. Now I don't have to worry. This one's an easy one to answer. And so I said, yes, God, I do. I love you. And I was pretty proud of my answer. I thought, yay, this is what this is about. And when I listed all the reasons why, yeah, I do, God, I love you, I really felt God say to me, Joe, will you speak for me? And true story, I didn't say yes, and I didn't say no. I simply said, God, I can't. That was my answer, God, I can't. And once again, I created this big long list. I said, God, there's so many reasons why I can't speak for you. I don't come from a Christian family. I am so shy. I am the kid that spews all my shoes if I'm asked to speak in front of a group of people. I said, look, God, there's just so many reasons why I can't do that. And after I'd finished my big, long list, God said, Joe, will you do it anyway? And at that point I prayed what is probably the stupidest prayer of my life, actually, because I said, God, if you make me able, then I will be willing. And fast forward probably about 15 years, and here I am, the pastor of a church. I am preaching sermons that I am not bold enough to preach. I am leading a congregation that I am not bold enough to lead. But you know what? God is doing it, and he's letting me go along for the ride. With everything in me, I answered God that day, God, I can't speak for you. And he said, will you do it anyway? That's my story, that's my testimony, and I just want to encourage you guys, despite your list of reasons why you can't speak for him, despite your list of all your fears and your worries and your concerns, if you are bold enough to pray, God, if you make me able, then I will be willing, then I so look forward to seeing history changed because people have prayed that prayer. God, if you make me able, then I will be willing. I love that lady. There's a, a specific part of that testimony that the Lord brought to my mind as I prepared for this morning. And he reminded me that I had it on video. <laughs> so I had to go and search and find it. But it's when she said the words, I looked at my life. And thought actually there wasn't much in it that I actually wanted to hold on to. And so I thought if God wanted the mess, he was certainly welcome to it. There's something that happened in Joe at 13 that's pivotal to the first part of baptism, which is death. You see, Romans 6, 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The old self was crucified. You see, in order to become a follower of Jesus, we, like Joe, have to come to this place where we're willing to give him who we had been 
because we decide that it's a mess anyway and there's nothing there worth holding on to. Because we begin to understand that everything about us, even the good stuff, the stuff that God will redeem because he created us in his image, our love for our families or the talents and gifts that he's given us, even those good things that he will then use for awesome purposes, they've been tainted by this thing called sin. It's all about self, about my own glory rather than God's glory. And all of us have to come to this place where we recognize that the old self was a mess. And God, in his grace, is standing there with his hand out saying, if you'll give it to me, I'll take it away. I'll let it be crucified with my son on the cross. All of that really describes this word repentance. And repentance and baptism go hand in hand throughout the scriptures. If we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 39, this is at Pentecost, after God has sent his spirit and the spirit's fullness upon the early church, and Peter has preached this awesome message, explaining to people that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he came and he took their sins, and he took their sins to the cross, and he died for them, and he's explained about their history and how everything connects. And the people ask them what they're supposed to do. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call. Repentance means recognizing that the life that I've been living is no longer the life that I want. Because I want a life that is pleasing to God and enables me to live in relationship with Him. It's death. It's an act of faith to believe that God can take who I was and can spiritually put that person on the cross of Calvary with Jesus and put that person to death so that all of the sins that I've ever committed are now washed with Christ's blood and I get to start over with a clean slate. And now the things that God put in me when he created me in his image, the taint of sin can be removed because it dies. But then I'm going to get into the second part of baptism and we're not, here, we're not there yet, so hold on. Let's look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans 2, verse 4, thinking about repentance. It says, do you show contempt for the riches of his being God's kindness? forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. You heard it in Joe's testimony. Before she got to the point of saying, when I thought about my life, I realized that actually it's a mess, and if God wanted it, he was welcome to it. Before she got there, what did she hear them preach about? How God loved her. How God was kind to her. Friends, if we don't see it, we've missed it. 
that over and over and over again throughout human history, God would have been completely justified to just shut the whole thing down and wipe humanity out. Because in comparison to his glory and his holiness, all we've ever done is fall short. All I've ever done is fall short. It is God's kindness, his mercy, his grace, his love that allows us to still exist. He has extended that kindness to the atheist, to the Muslim, to me and to you. The question is, what do we do with that kindness? It's meant to lead us to repentance. And the season of God's patience and kindness and forbearance, that season will come to an end at the fullness of time. There's only a certain amount of time that we are given the opportunity to respond to God's kindness, love, mercy, and grace. And the only appropriate response is repentance. The only appropriate response is saying, God, I realize that everything about who I am has been tainted by evil and sin. So you can have it and you can nail it to the cross with Jesus. Dead and buried. No more. We look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 20. It says this. Sorry, that's a long reference. Verse 10, sorry. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Two things biblically that lead us to repentance. The first is God's kindness to us. The second is a godly kind of sorrow. It's that sorrow that brings us to the point of realizing I'm a mess. I have offended a holy God. And I have sorrow over it. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is whether or not it leads to repentance, whether or not it leads to a death of the old. Worldly sorrow is sorry that it got caught. Worldly sorrow is sorry that there are negative consequences to their sin. But worldly sorrow does not lead to a death to the old. And therefore, it doesn't lead to salvation. And it leads to a spiritual death that's eternal. These two things, the kindness of God and godly sorrow, lead us to a place of repentance. Aaron and I have had a lot of conversations about repentance over the last months, years, even. As she has been searching, what does it mean to be saved? What's it mean to become a Christian? How can I have assurance about the eternal nature of my soul and where I'll spend eternity? And we kept coming back to this theme of repentance because it's where it starts. It's the beginning of the death. It says, God, I look at my life and I realize that there's actually not much there to hold on to. The only good that's there is because of your mercy and your grace, not because of me. So if you really want the mess, walk to We look at Galatians 2, 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
Galatians talks a lot about this death, this crucifixion. This verse says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The person I used to be, that person's not around anymore because now Jesus himself has taken up residence in my life and he's the one who gets to live through me. We look further in Galatians and we see a little bit more about this crucifixion. We look at in chapter 5, verse 24. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh being everything about this human body that was born into a sinful world and corrupt. Everything that wanted to do the things that I wasn't supposed to do. Everything in me that wanted to rebel against what God had for me. That part of me gets crucified with Jesus. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I didn't put that on the screen, but we're starting to move to the second phase of baptism, from death into, oh wait, we're not there yet, okay. Let's look again at Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This death, it means that those sinful desires in me that used to control my life, I'm saying, Jesus, I want you to take them to the cross. I don't want them anymore. I want them to die. And it also means that the world and its structures and its culture, the things about this world that are an offense to God Almighty, those things are going to be crucified to me and I to it because my allegiance is no longer to this world. It's to God's heavenly kingdom. Death. I love the NLT translation of, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to that chapter here in a moment. If we look at Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 11, it talks about circumcision, a cutting off, but not a physical circumcision. Listen to this. It says, and in, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And God cuts that off of us because it's been put on the cross and it's no longer ours to bear. Forgiveness. It comes in response to the death of repentance. Jesus came to die so the mess of our sin permeated lives might be united with him in his death. All right, so that's the first part of baptism, the dying part. But then there's a second part. 
and it's the new life that comes through the Holy Spirit. We'll look back at Romans 6. I'm going to read verses 5 and 8 and then 11 to 13. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. If we look ahead at chapter 7, verse 6 of Romans, it tells us, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released. It says now we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see this new life that we're raised to? It's not all that different than God telling Joe, I want you to speak for me. Because the new life we're raised to, if we look at it, we go, I can't live like that. I can't love like you love God. I can't forgive like you forgive. I can't resist temptation, Jesus, like you resisted temptation. We look at the new life that God calls us to, and we all together go with Joe. I can't do that. And we tell him all the reasons. God, you don't know my temper. God, you don't know how selfish I am. We list all the things, all the reasons why we can't live a new life of holiness and righteousness. And then God asks us, will you do it anyway? Because he's looking for people who are willing and then he'll make us able. And he does it through his Holy Spirit. You see, we're to repent and be baptized. And what else did Peter say in Acts chapter 2? That then you would receive the Holy Spirit. Then you live according to the Spirit's leading instead of having to live according to the letter of the law. People failed constantly when they had been given the law, the expectations of what it looked like to live a holy life, because you and I in our flesh can't. But God most certainly can. And he says, I'll give you myself. And I'll raise you into a new kind of life. He doesn't take your choice away. Thus the commands don't offer any part of your body up to sin. You still have a choice to make. But the power of sin that had controlled our life when we put our faith in Jesus is dead. And the power to live a new way has been given to us without measure. New life. This is what Jesus was talking about in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is such a famous chapter, but it's what Jesus was referring to. He's talking about this new life in the Holy Spirit that we can't live on our own. If we look at verse 3, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, unless they receive new Life. Verse 4. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot um, enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. 
flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The old has to die with Jesus, and the new has to raise with him. And the same spirit, Romans 8 tells us, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus' physical body from the dead now lives in me. And he can do things I can't do. Amen. So that like Job said, that she could speak with boldness things that, he, that she can't speak. That she could lead with boldness of people that she could never lead. Friends, it means that we can love unselfishly in a way that we could never love unselfishly. It means that we can serve others in a way that we never thought we'd be able to serve. It means that we can walk in a way that is righteous and pure and holy in a way that we never could have walked before because God's Spirit is the one who can do it. And we've given him our old life and he's killed it. And he's given us a new one. Raised to new life. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 to 24, talks about this. It's worded this way. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Who does the renewing and the making new? Not me, but the Holy Spirit does it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in union with him in both his death and in his resurrection, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. We'll skip to Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 to 16. Galatians 6, 15 to 16. A little bit of context that in this letter, the act, the physical act of circumcision, which was the sign of the Jews being the chosen people of God, has been a hot topic of debate. Because there are people who are trying to say that in order to become a Christian, in order to follow Jesus, that you also, in essence, have to become a Jew. And so that would mean that you have to experience circumcision in order to follow Jesus. And look at what is said here in verses 15 to 16. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. I love the New Living Translation. I don't have it on the screen, but listen to it. It says, it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. How are people to identify the people of God? because they've been transformed into someone different. It means that when in the past 
if we messed up and we might have just tried to cover it up and move on, now we recognize that we messed up and that it was an offense to a holy God, not just to a person, and we go back and we make it right. We're different. It means that the person that would have only thought about ourselves now thinks about others. That is the sign to the world around us that we're the people of God, that we're followers of Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, I'm not going to read this, but in Colossians 3, 1 to 3 and verse 10, it talks about how when we're in Christ, that we have a new focus. Our hearts and our minds are focused where Christ is instead of on the things down here on this earth. It says that we have a new identity because our identity is that we are in Christ. And it talks about in verse 10 that we enter into this continual daily process of being renewed by his spirit so that the image of God that was in us from creation becomes clearer and clearer as that new transformed creation becomes more and more evident to the people around us. When we take these first steps of faith to become a follower of Jesus, we don't necessarily have it all figured out. There's a lot that God hasn't even shown us yet. Things in us where sin has affected us and we don't even recognize it. And God continues to be patient and kind as he reveals those things. But he's already given us the Holy Spirit then so that we can be transformed when he shows us. One last scripture this morning. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Baptism represents the essentials of what it is to be a Christian, that there has to be a death, a true repentance, and then through the power of God's Spirit, as we faithfully allow him to put those things to death, we are raised to new life. And we become new. Church, I have some questions for you this morning before Aaron comes. The first is, have you ever truly experienced repentance from the, method, the mess of sin? And have you put faith in Jesus for the death of your life? Maybe you've examined your life when you've been challenged to give it to God, and there's actually stuff there that you go, I don't want to let go of that. Jesus says you've got to get to the place where you call it a mess, and you've got to welcome me to it. There's no Christianity without repentance. There's no heaven without repentance. There's no spiritual life without repentance. You've got to die. Jesus went to the cross so you could. So that mess could be nailed there with him. Have you forgotten that you were united with Jesus in both his death and resurrection? Now we can choose to still give parts of ourselves to sin, even after we've experienced salvation. That's the command's not to do it. 
think that often the enemy will convince people that they don't have the power not to choose a certain sin. And it's a lie. You've forgotten that you were united with Jesus in his death. Sin no longer has a hold on you. It's no longer your master. Don't forget. It's dead. Don't forget that you were in union with him when he came out of that tomb victorious. He's given you his spirit for new life. Are you living as one who is dead to sin and alive to God through the work of his Holy Spirit? Is your life a witness for the one who makes all things new? Well, when people observe you, do they just see who you've always been? It's not about circumcision. It's about new creation. That's the sign to an unbelieving world that Jesus is real. Death in your life. 